Section 14 of the Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7. Charles the Great, King of the Franks, 768 to 800, Emperor of the Romans, 800 to 814, Part 1. The change in the Frank line of kings in the middle of the 8th century in 752 was an event of great and wide importance. Under the race of Clovis, the history of the Franks, though they were the leading nation of the West, was, with the exception of their chronic struggle with the kindred German tribes on the border and occasional and aimless inroads into Spain and Italy, confined within their own limits. Their dealings with other nations and even with the Pope, the center of the ecclesiastical system, were few and unimportant. But with Charles Martel and his sons, the range of Frank history widens, and it begins to affect the general course of European history. The first care of these able rulers was to consolidate once more the strength of the Franks. Conscious how great it was, they gathered up again under a firm hand the loosely compacted and fast-dissolving elements of the Frank power. They maintained the claim of the Franks to supremacy over their ruder kindred in Alemannia, Bavaria, Thuringia, and even, though with more trouble, over the Saxons. By their vigor and determined perseverance, they beat down at last the obstinate and dangerous revolt of Aquitaine, which, under a line of powerful dukes, Teutonic in name, but southern in feeling, was fast assuming the character of a war of national independence on the part of the Latin South against the Teutonic North. Pippin, at his death in 768, had reunited once more under one king all the conquests of Clovis and his successors, and having done this the Frank kings departed from their former isolation and entered into new relations with the world outside them. They did three things. 1. Carrying on the alliance of Charles Martel with the popes, they founded and built up, as has already been said, the temporal dominion of the papacy, and gave a new importance to the political influence of the popes in Europe. 2. Next, as a consequence of their close relations with the popes, they revived in their family the name of the Roman Empire and the dignity of the Roman Emperor, long suspended in the West, which were to pass after them through many hands and many lines, but were never to be extinct again till the beginning of our own century. 3. And lastly, they laid the foundations of modern Germany, and decisively reclaimed it from its primitive barbarism to Christendom and a civilization. What Pippin had begun, and begun with sagacity and force, was carried on by a yet stronger hand, on a larger scale, and in the course of a longer reign. Pippin died in 768, and the kingdom of the Franks, according to a Frank rule of inheritance, or an idea of expediency which no one then dared to break through, was, with the consent of all the Franks, shared or more properly governed in partnership by his two sons, Charles and Carloman, who with their father had received the dignity of kings from Pope Stephen in 754. The risks of dissension between them were averted, 
and the course of history determined by the early death of Carloman. In 771, Charles became the sole king of the Franks. In our materials for knowledge as well as in the character of the events, we pass into a new stage with the appearance of Charles, whom his own age at least, after his death, was to name the Great. We at once acquire a mass of contemporary information, meagre indeed compared with more recent records and with many older, but in comparison with those of the preceding times, both full and trustworthy. Of Charles we have a contemporary biography, the first instance of a lay or secular biography in Christian times, his life by Egenhardt or Einhardt. For public events, a series of annals begins, not improbably originating under Charles's orders, which give details of time and place with a care unknown before. We have a large, though incomplete, collection of his acts of government and legislation, and further, a considerable number of important letters, both public, such as those of the popes collected by Charles's command, and private, such as those of Charles's friend and adviser, the Englishman Alcuin or Alcuin. The name Charlemagne, by which he has been so long known, is one of those popular names which ought to be abandoned, not from considerations of scholarly accuracy, but because it helps so much to keep up a completely false idea of what he was. We in England ought to hold at least to our traditional form, Charlemagne, which was Milton's authority. He has been represented by French historians as in some sense a French king, the most illustrious and wide ruling of the Second Dynasty, one in the same line of kings as Saint-Louis and Henry IV. It cannot be too clearly and too firmly borne in mind that this, rooted as the conception has become, is absolutely misleading. France, as it was to be, and as we know it, had not come into existence in his days. What was to be the France of history was then but one province of the Frank kingdom, and one with which Charles was personally least connected. Modern France, again, is a nation in which the Latin or Latinized races have won the ascendancy. But Charles, king of the Franks, was above all things a German. He was in language, in ideas, in policy, in tastes, in his favorite dwelling places, a Teutonic, not a Latin or Latinized king, and it is entirely to mistake his place and his work to consider him in the light of a specially French king, a predecessor of the kings who reigned at Paris and brought glory upon France. Modern France is a fragment, made up of fragments, split off from the original Frank kingdom long after Charles's death. The kingdom which he inherited and enlarged was as different in spirit, in constitution, in national characteristics, as it was in boundaries, from that portion of it which ultimately retained the Frank name in the West. Charles did nothing to make modern France. The Frank power on which he arose to the empire was in those days still mainly German, and his characteristic work was to lay the foundations of a modern and civilized Germany, and indirectly of the new commonwealth of nations which was to arise in the west of Europe. The necessary condition of a great ruler in those days was that he should be a great warrior. 
Charles, whose real claim to greatness lies in the clearness with which he discerned the need of order and law, and sought their sources and securities in the deeper springs of human nature, was first of all things in the eyes of his own generation a king who was always at war and always victorious. In his warlike habits he was not different from the frank kings before him. Children of invaders, they had perpetually to repel invasion, to cope with rivals, to prove their prowess and strength. The special feature of Charles's wars was the indomitable pertinacity with which he carried them to the end, and the untiring alacrity and rapidity with which he moved from one point to another of his wide frontier of war. Among the turbulent populations which on all sides beset the Frank kingdom, two heavy and permanent masses of hostility hung like storm clouds, never removing and always threatening, on his northeastern and his southern borders, the heathen Saxons between the Rhine and the Elbe, pressed upon by the heathen Slavs beyond the Elbe, and the Saracens in Spain. The Saracens he pushed back to the Ebro, adding the Spanish march or borderland beyond the Pyrenees to his kingdom, and claiming, though not without continual dispute, the great cities of Saragossa and Barcelona. The Saxon war was far more serious and troublesome. It was checkered by grave disasters, and pursued with undismayed and unrelenting determination, on which he spared neither himself nor others. It lasted continuously, with its stubborn and ever-recurring resistance, its cruel devastations, its winter campaigns, its merciless acts of vengeance, as the effort which called forth all Charles's energy for thirty-two years from 772 to 804. The subjugation of the Saxons more resembled in its systematic completeness the policy followed by the kinsmen of the Saxons in Britain than anything which had been seen on the continent. But it decided, finally and for good, the question in Germany between heathenism and Christianity, between continued barbarism or the first steps, the only ones then possible, to civilization. The Saxon land, so rudely reduced to obedience, so rudely Christianized, were planted not only with castles but with towns and mission stations, Osnabrück, Paderborn, Münster, Minden, Halberstadt, Bremen, bishoprics along the course of the Lippe and the Weser, monasteries like Fulda, which were both agricultural colonies and schools of learning. The tribes of Upper and Middle Germany, Bavarians, Alemann, Thuringians, Hessians, longer accustomed to the assertions of Frank supremacy and partially converted by the English and other missionaries whom Pippin had encouraged, were fast becoming states organized or ready to be organized into dukedoms of the Frank kingdom, and any signs of restlessness, as in the frontier dukedom of Bavaria, were vigorously put down, 788. But beyond the refractory Saxons and the more settled German lands was a second line of barbarism from the Elbe to the Danube, stretching without defined limit, far back towards the east, from which it was recruited. There were the Huns, or Avars, in the plains between the Danube and the Sava. There were Slav races of many names from the shores of the Adriatic, the eastern Alps, 
and the mountains of Bohemia to the havens of the Baltic, and there were yet the more threatening Northmen, who had access to the still unsettled Saxon lands by the isthmus which is now Schleswig, and to whose ships the whole seaboard of the Franks, from the mouth of the Vesa to the mouths of the Rhone, lay open. With all these Charles carried on persevering, and for the age, scientific war. Military bridges, sometimes double ones, were thrown across rivers like the Elbe and the Danube, and their approaches duly protected. An attempt was made, though in vain, to facilitate military communications by a navigable canal connecting affluence of the Rhine and Danube. His operations were conducted on mutually supporting lines of march, converging on the threatened point, definiteness of purpose. Great patience, caution, celerity appear in them. His most brilliant war in the eyes of his contemporaries was that in which the power of the Hunnish Avars, no longer terrible as of old but still able to give trouble, was broken. Their ring or palace camp was forced and destroyed. Their chagan or chief acknowledged the supremacy of the Frank king and was baptized, and the spoils of the Avars, the collected plunder of their old forays, were said to be so great as to bring down the value of silver by a third. The Slav races, quarrelsome and rapacious, were kept in awe by chastisement, or were involved by his policy in wars among themselves. The Northmen, even to Charles, were the most formidable of his foes. They fomented Saxon resistance, and its fiercest leader, the Westphalian Vitikint, ever had a ready refuge, when hard-pressed, in neighboring Denmark. The Danish king, Godfred, became in Charles's later years more and more daring in his acts of aggression, and after obtaining from Charles the honor of a conference on equal terms between Frank and Danish chiefs, was preparing to measure his strength with the great emperor in a pitched battle when he was assassinated and Denmark was involved in civil war. But the tide of northern invasion was rising, and before Charles died it was beginning to break with alarming violence on all the coasts of his realm. He was fully alive to the danger. The northern coasts were visited and inspected by the emperor himself, fleets were built, Boulogne and Ghent were made his harbors and arsenals. He died before his fortune at sea was tried, but the growing insults and ravages of the northern pirates in Friesland of the Moorish pirates over the coasts and islands of the Mediterranean, and of the Greek fleets in the Adriatic, threw a shade at the close over the splendor of his wars, and disquieted his last years with well-grounded anxiety. All these wars were part of a concentrated and persistent plan to reduce and keep under control the dangerous barbarism which hemmed in and pressed upon his kingdom. But the Lombard War was a political one, waged less even for the conquest of Italy than for its indirect results. The ill-compacted and turbulent kingdom of the Lombards, with its almost independent dukedoms, Tuscany, Spoleto, Benevento, Friuli, Trent, had usually been in later times an inoffensive neighbor to the Franks, but often, though it had ceased to be Arian, a troublesome one to the popes. We have seen how a pope prevailed on Pippin to undertake the defense, as it was called, of the church, 
and how Pippin had answered the appeal and had transferred some of the fairest provinces of the Lombard kingdoms to the popes. But the quarrel still went on. Letter after letter from the popes, Stephen III, 753-757, Hadrian I, 772-795, brought the most lamentable complaints of Lombard injustice and oppression. St. Peter was made to speak in his own name, promising heaven to those who should deliver him from wrong, and denouncing divine vengeance on those who should be slack in assisting him. Charles had indeed set at naught a threat of excommunication from Pope Stephen IV in 769 to be pronounced if the king dared to marry a daughter of King Desiderius, one of the foul and horrid race of the Lombards. But when the serious work of his reign began, he seems to have thought it wise, as early as possible, to arrange his relations with the Pope. In 772, leaving the Saxon War, he crossed the Alps, and by the Montseny and the St. Bernard, threw the whole power of the Franks into Italy. The passes were forced, and no stand was made in the field. There was a winter siege of Pavia. It capitulated. The last Lombard king, Desiderius, was carried captive and placed in a Frank monastery, and the Lombard power came to an end. The king of the Franks became also king of the Lombards, the lord of all Italy, except the Venetian islands and the south of Calabria still held by the Greeks. Thus, by German hands, the internal ascendancy of the German race in Italy, which had lasted first under the Goths, and then under the Lombards for 281 years, was finally broken. A German was still king over Italy, as for ages Germans were still to be. But the Roman and native influence reconquered its supremacy in Italy, under the management and leadership of the bishops of Rome. The Lombards, already becoming Italianized, melted into provincial Italians. The Teutonic language disappeared, leaving a number of words to Italian dialects and a number of names to Italian families. The last king of the Lombards bore an Italian name, Desiderius. The latest of Italian national heroes bears the Bavarian and Lombard name of Garibaldi. But the overthrow of the Lombards and the gift of provinces and cities to St. Peter had even more eventful results. The alliance between the king of the Franks and the bishop of Rome had become one of the closest kind. With Pippin and Charles begin the titles given them by the Roman chancery of Most Christian King and Defender of the Church. The German king and the Italian pope found themselves together at the head of the modern world of the West. But the fascination of the name of Rome still, as it had done for centuries, held sway over the Teutonic mind. It stood for power, for knowledge, for the perfection of civil life, for the purity of religion. The barbarians despised Romans, but they venerated Rome. It was not unnatural that the idea should recommend itself both to the king and the pope of reviving in the West in close connection with the Roman primacy that great name which still filled the imagination of the world and which in Roman judgments Greek Byzantium had wrongfully stolen away the name of Caesar Augustus, the claim to govern the world. 
there was a longing in the West for the restoration of the name and authority, lest, as the contemporary writers express it, the heathen should mock at the Christian if the name of emperor had ceased among them. And at this moment the government at Constantinople was in the hands of a woman, the Empress Irene. Charles's services to the Pope were recompensed and his victorious career of more than thirty years crowned by the restoration at Rome in his person of the Roman Empire and the imperial dignity. The same authority which had made him patrician and consecrated him king now created him emperor of the Romans. On Christmas Day, 800, when Charles came to pay his devotions before the altar of St. Peter's, Pope Leo III, without Charles's knowledge or wish, so Charles declared to his biographer Einhardt, and it may be prematurely, as regards Charles's own feeling, placed a golden crown on his head, while all the people shouted, To Charles, the most pious Augustus, crowned of God, the great peace-giving emperor of the Romans, life and victory. By all round him the Pope and clergy, the Roman chiefs and people, the great men of the Franks, he was chosen and thrice proclaimed emperor at Rome, the mother of empire, where Caesars and emperors were wont to sit. And by the Pope himself he was adored, after the manner of the emperors of old. All saw in his matchless power and in their own unanimity the hand of God. End of section 14